We're going to hear from Nathan. I'm going to pray for him as he brings God's word to us. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for what you've been teaching us through this incredible book of Acts, Lord God, where we see your Holy Spirit moving and we see your people being obedient to you, Lord God. Uh, We would pray for Nathan now that as he brings the word that uh, we might open our spiritual ears, Lord God, that we might hear what you have to say to us and that we might act on those things that you're prompting us with. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Does anybody want to know what was on the text messages? I can actually tell you, actually, what was on the text messages. It was my wife here and my son in New Zealand communicating. And uh, so what do you think about that in church? Is this a, is this a, is this a, a normal thing to do? Uh, obviously not, but that's okay. It's quite a fun communication. We're trying to catch up with them, and um, so that, that is a, a good thing. As you're aware, we're going through a series in the book of Acts, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with you this morning from the back end of Acts 18 and the front end of Acts 19. I was wondering, uh, how many of you here have heard of Team Hoyt? Has anyone heard of Team Hoyt? Well, clearly you have not. And this is not a, a normal type team. It's not a V8 supercar team or a motorcycle team. They're a father and son team. But it's no ordinary father and son team, you see, because uh, one of the members of Team Hoyt is Rick, the son. And he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at birth. During his birth, the umbilical cord got wrapped around his, his uh, neck and caused an uh, oxygen block. Through the ongoing care of, loving care of his mother and father, uh, Rick was eventually fitted with a computer-enabled device which enabled him to communicate with his mum and dad. And it was discovered that Rick was incredibly intelligent. And he managed to attend public schools. And in uh, 1993, he actually graduated from Boston University with a degree in special education. But you wind back a little bit, uh, Team Hoyt, as it was known, was formed by Rick and his father, who is Dick. So we've got Dick and Rick, and they uh, formed this team because one day Rick said to his dad uh, they were raising funds for a a lacrosse player who'd been severely injured and paralyzed playing, and he said to his dad, I'd like to be involved in the run that they are having uh, to support this young man. And see, Dick wasn't a runner. He was 36 years old, and, and so he decided to push uh, Rick in a wheelchair through this 5K run. And uh, after the race, Rick said to his dad, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. As of March this year, the Hoyts have completed 
1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons, seven Ironman triathlons. They've run the Boston Marathon 32 times. And adding to their massive list of achievements, this team also ran across the United States. The full 3,735 miles, well, that's about 5,000 kilometres over a 45-day period. When they used to complete the triathlons and the Ironman-type things, uh, the father, Dick, would swim and he would uh, have a, a rope attached to a boat and he'd pull Rick along. Special bike they had, a, a tandem-type bike where Rick would stand in front or sit in front as Dad would pedal. And for the run, it was a push in the wheelchair. So you appreciate that's a remarkable effort, isn't it? It's a remarkable effort of love and a deep effort of affection shown by a father to a son. And as I reflected upon this remarkable story, I cannot but focus on this deep love and deep commitment that Dick had for his son, Rick. You see, this father would have to have laid aside everything in his commitment to be able to do these events with his son. He would have to lay aside his own ambitions, his own goals, his own desires. Why? So that he could hear the words from his son. Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. That's a deep love and commitment that this man had. And as we turn to this portion in Acts this morning, I'm hopeful we'll be challenged in the same way. In the same way about what do you need to lay aside? What do I need to lay aside to be obedient to God's transforming word in your life? You know, what is stopping you from being effective in serving? What needs to be confessed? What habits or indifference needs pruning so that the Word of God impacts your heart and mind afresh to serve Him wholeheartedly? This morning we're going to be reading three very short stories at the start of Paul's third missionary journey. See, Paul's third missionary journey is centered predominantly around a place, and it's Ephesus. I had a map to show you. I'll show you it next week. Ephesus is where this journey centers for very important reasons. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 18, and we will read the first one of these stories. Acts 18, verse 23. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible, please... Help yourself up the front here or, or look at your neighbours. It'll be okay. After pen, spending some time there, so Anisha immediately asked the question, where was he spending time? Paul had just completed a second missionary journey. He'd gone back to his home church of Antioch and he had spent some time there. 
He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phagia. And his sole purpose of going back through those areas was to visit churches that he had visited previously in his first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. With the sole purpose of strengthening all his disciples. Paul had an incredible heart to, to pour out his life to those that he had come to minister to. He did not stay long in Antioch. He did not stay long in the home comforts of the home church and the home environment. He moved beyond and started pouring his life and heart and energy back into those who had come to faith in Christ. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, confident in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So at the start of this journey, we see a new character, a new man, Apollos. Apollos had traveled from the north of Africa, from a place called Alexandria. Alexandria is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. And it was considered the leading intellectual and cultural center of the, the world of that time. So, for instance, if you would consider the leading intellectual and, and cultural center of the world being New Zealand, as we all know, it's similar to that. No, I'm joking. All right? It's not leading in anything, except for rugby. But that's okay. So you, you're thinking an Oxford, a Cambridge, a Harvard, a Stanford, those types of places which are considered to be, in today's world, the leading minds meet. Alexander was that place. Alexandra had a phenomenal library for the time. We would probably scoff at the, 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 the size of the library today, but the city was built around this massive museum and a 400,000-volume library. Now, consider 400,000 volumes of books. Sure, I know on your iPad you can get that probably very, very quickly. Consider Alexandra in 50 A.D., no printing press, only written books. It's significant. Significant. Alexander was known for another major thing. They, the Jewish scholars of uh, that place had produced the Old Testament scriptures in the Greek language. It's what we know as the Septuagint. So that's where the scholarship took place. They took the Hebrew text and the Aramaic text and translated it. They were the first Bible translators, if you like. And they moved it into 
a language that all could read, known as the Septuagint. So this is where Apollos had come from. And we read in the text here that Apollos was eloquent. He was confident in scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he was fervent in the Spirit. And he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So this man was a a man who knew and loved the Lord. And yet we have a little caveat here, yet he only knew the baptism of John. He was filled with the Spirit, because the previous part of the verse tells us that he was fervent in the Spirit, capital S. He knew what it was to be baptized in the Spirit, yet he physically had only been baptized in the baptism of John. And he spoke powerfully in Ephesus. He spoke powerfully in the synagogue here. And he proclaimed boldly. You see, Apollos had acted and accepted John's testimony about who Jesus was. Remember John the Baptist's testimony? I baptize you with water, but someone who will come after me, whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. See, Apollos had accepted that. And he recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And that shaped and formed his ministry. As he himself was starting to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles as a Jew. That's also interesting as you read this, you see something else has happened and you're introduced to a, or reintroduced to a character by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. If you read at the start of chapter 18, and I think Shabu covered this last week, that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were, were uh, tent makers in Corinth. And they'd been under the ministry of Paul's ministry for about 18 months. They come to know the Lord. They come to to know that it was by grace you were saved through faith. And they had actually come with Paul on the end of his second missionary journey and stopped off at Ephesus. Hence we find them here ministering in this synagogue in Ephesus. And it's wonderful to see that the way the body works here because you see Priscilla and Aquila they hear something that's not quite right with Apollos' teaching. It doesn't quite line up with what they have come to know from Paul. So what do they do? Do they post the error on Facebook? Do they scribe the error and send it to all the churches in the Asia Minor region saying, stay away from Apollos, he is a heretic. What is their strategy and how do they encourage Apollos? It's a wonderful lesson here as you look at what they did. They heard him. They sort of saddled aside next to him and says, Apollos, come over and have a pork roast with us. We just want to tell you a few things. 
few things we've observed about your presentation of Christ the Messiah that you need to think through. Now, Apollos, in the text doesn't tell us, didn't get angry with this. He, he did not become embittered by this instruction. Because he wished to go and continue to proclaim Christ in Corinth. He wanted to go over to Acacia and to encourage the brothers there. And those here at Ephesus, notice, firstly wrote a letter of commendation. They wrote a letter that said, we have full assurance and full (coughs) trust in this man and his message. We're happy to send him. We're happy for you to receive him. And uh, to see the testimony of what happened when he arrived in Corinth. He greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. That's his encouraging side of his ministry. He grabbed the disciples and he encouraged them in the grace of God. And I think as I read through this, this is probably the piece that was missing from Apollos when he originally taught. He did not fully comprehend God's grace. But as Priscilla and Aquila talked into his life and ministered to him, he became a mighty proclaimer of this truth. So that was one aspect. He helped and he encouraged those disciples in Corinth. And the second aspect, it was quite apologetic because he powerfully powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Notice that. This this term is not used very often. And uh, it's actually, it's the only time in the New Testament this verb is used. And it has the sense of overpowering with his argument. I wouldn't say this is for everybody. Okay. It's not our goal to overpower with argument, but in this situation, this is what Apollos did. He could refute the Jews because of their misunderstanding of the Messiah. You see, Jews and Christians agreed at this point in time. They agreed that there was to be a Messiah. But Apollos had to prove from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's the thing he was refuting and he was proclaiming to them in this apologetic way. So we see here a a model. A model for correction. A model for encouragement. A model of how we should instruct one another in the faith. Sure, Apollos was high profile. Not all of us are high profile. Not all of us uh, preach and teach in a way like this. But I think we can learn a lot from, especially Priscilla and Aquila, and how they approached Apollos. And how they got beside him and how they discipled him. They had been discipled by Paul. They understood God's grace and its, its wonderful display through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And they took him aside privately. 
to instruct. I think that's a great model. When we hear and when we see something that we do not agree with based on Scripture, with a fellow brother or sister in Christ, have the love, have the compassion to take them privately to discuss. The second thing that you see here is the teachability of Apollos. I think this may be harder for some of us than others. How teachable are you? How willing are you to take instruction? Especially when it comes to your pet doctrines. Especially when it comes to those things which you you hold so dearly and deeply. Yes, convictions are good. Convictions are great on the essential elements of the gospel. But we all know we have those fringe things that we sometimes decide I'm going to actually be really ungracious in that. So how teachable are you? Ask the Spirit of God to break your heart open to be teachable. Think through that process that generally when people come to encourage you, to instruct you, that they love you deeply and they want to pass on wisdom. And then thirdly, we hear and we see just the, the wonderful nature of this church at Ephesus, this new church. Paul had only recently visited them. He, hadn't, he didn't visit them for very long. You see it in Acts um, 18 verse 20. He wasn't there long. Apollos came, they ministered with him, and then they supported him to minister elsewhere. This is a healthy model. Go to people privately to discuss those things. Be teachable in your own heart with a goal of ministering to all. Let's read Acts 19. And it happened that when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, And to them, What were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years. 
so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. As we come to the start of chapter 19, we see the impact of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. Paul expends an extended period of time in this city. There's no other city that he spends more time in than this place here in Ephesus. And this entire chapter shows several ways in which the gospel impacted this place and the surrounding regions. We see from our reading, Apollos has moved from Ephesus down to Corinth. And as you read Corinth, remember, you, you, Corinthians, you start seeing those things. Like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, etc. So this is where this is all happening in that historical context. And Paul's great response, I don't care who you follow, just follow Christ. Because that's what it's about. And so Apollos is ministering in Corinth and Paul's arrived for the second time in Ephesus. So what do we know about the city? We know it's mentioned quite often in the New Testament. We, we have mention of it here, chapters 19 and chapters 20. There's a letter written to Ephesus. We have that. When uh, John is given a vision by the Lord Jesus about the revelation of things to come, we see there's a letter written to the church at Ephesus. So when it comes to being witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world, Ephesus is central in, in this mission. And if you saw this map that I had here, you would see where Ephesus is. It's in modern-day Turkey. So think about Turkey. You've got the Black Sea, you've got the Mediterranean, you've got Turkey there. Ephesus is just in there on the coast a little bit. Who's been to Ephesus? I know some here have been to Ephesus. Okay. So you know what I'm talking. Yeah. So they're, they're in this place, in this valley. Part of Ephesus, you've got Laodicea is up one part of the valley, and another place called Heratius is up the other part of the valley. So it's a, a fertile valley. It was positioned midway between two continents. Here, the east met the west. The population at the time of, of Paul, when he was ministering here, expected about 350,000 people. Quite a large city for that time. And there were some key buildings in Ephesus, which we'll come across over the next week. I just want to mention them very briefly, because they are significant. The synagogue is key. And this is where this story starts. The school of Tyrannius becomes key because Paul ministers there for two years. And the seventh wonder of the world, a temple of Artemis, is significant for this city. It was outside the city wall. It was the chief glory of the city and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This building was about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was richly decorated with uh, the works of the greatest painters and sculptors of that age. Also, Ephesus had a theatre, a large theatre, and I'll show you the pictures next week. Of, it seated 25,000 people. That's quite significant when you think about that. And it had a court in legal terms. It was a court. 
And see, Paul came across into Ephesus and he came across some disciples. And he asked them a very telling question. He, he asked them a question to determine what type of disciples you were. Just because you see the word disciple in the, in the text does not mean they're a follower of Jesus. Okay? The word disciple here could be a follower of anybody. It's a generic term. We tend to, unfortunately, in through our Christian lens and Christian eyes, every time we see this type of word, we say, oh, they must be followers of Jesus. This is not the case here in this text. They are disciples. Who are they following? Most likely John. John the Baptist. They've been baptized with John. We don't know if they've been baptized physically by John or by some of John's followers. This is some time after the death of John. 20, 25 years after Pentecost, probably 30-odd years after John was alive. So most likely some second-hand type fellowship, if you like. But Paul asked them an incredible question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Straight up, the answer is No. We've not even heard of who the Holy Spirit is or what the Holy Spirit is. And then the subsequent question is asked, well then, were you baptized? And I said, yeah, into the baptism of John. And then Paul proclaims Christ to them in a very succinct way. In verse 4. So John baptized with a baptism of repentance. And the focus of the baptism of repentance was only one thing. That baptism of repentance would lead you to believe in the one who was to come after John. Baptism of repentance was to, to lead you to Christ, to lead you the, to the, the man that could forgive sins eternally. And this moved these men. And they realized their need for a Savior. And they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is the only time in the New Testament you have this, this subsequent baptism. Yeah, we baptized once into John, but now we're baptized into Christ. And the baptism here, I would think, would be a full immersion or a, some form of that. Doesn't text doesn't tell us, but they were physically baptized again. And to, then to authenticate this experience, they began speaking in tongues and glossia and prophesying. Just like the day of Pentecost. These men started speaking in a known language. This is the word that's used here. It's a, a, a language and a dialect. And they began prophesying. And see, this brings up some issues of context, does it not? Okay, is this a normal experience? And, or how does this fit into today in the 21st century? You've got to realize when Acts is written and it's a historical account of the birth of the church, what is the importance of prophesying in the early part of the birth of the church? Kind of simple, really, because they never had the New Testament. The only scriptures they had was the Old Testament. 
So therefore, for God's God's truth to be revealed and to be spread, it came through this gift of prophecy. And associated with this is the, the gift of being able to speak in a known language of another dialect. So for instance, that would be if I all of a sudden here started speaking in Chinese if we had a Chinese audience, or Italian, or Greek, without any former qualification. That's the type of miracle it is. It's an immediate miracle. For the birth of the church through this period. You see, this raises a theological issue because we have in in Christendom today, we have issues around this. And what it means, is is this a normal experience of salvation? Should this be a normal experience? And I would say, no. Because in here, the context clearly shows you that these disciples did not know the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was poured into them at their point of conversion. That's simple in the context. I have more to say on this, but I I do not have time. Just one thing I want to highlight. Whenever it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and in relation to to sign gifts, etc., there is confusion around that. I want to say this one thing. The primary role of the Holy Spirit's role in the person's life is to exalt Christ. You go to John chapter 16, and you read this. You read Jesus' high priestly prayer to his disciples, and he says these things. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us of our sin. And the coming judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Another role of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth, folks? How does the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth? Through the written word of God. As you read God's word, the Holy Spirit illuminates this, transforms your heart and changes you. That's how the Spirit of God works, through his word. Thirdly, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whoever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Fourthly, he will glorify me. The role of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is to glorify Christ. To glorify Christ.
does the Spirit of God draw you to glorify Christ each day? Or are you suppressing His Spirit that in some way mars and merges, merges the image of Christ in your life? My heart is that if that is the case, grab His Word, seek forgiveness, and ask that the Spirit illuminates your heart to glorify Christ. For it's Him we proclaim. This is the application here of, of Acts, this little portion. You've got a contrast. You've got a contrast between Apollos and a contrast between these disciples. Apollos knew the Lord. Apollos was filled with the Spirit. These disciples were disciples in name. They did not know. They were following after John. But they yielded their heart to Christ and the Spirit indwelt them. I ask you that question. Are you a disciple of Christ in name? Or have you put your faith and trust in him? So when you put your faith and trust in him, the spirit dwells within you. And you have a life that is incredible. He died for your sin so that you may live. His righteousness, His goodness, His purity has been transferred to your behalf if you put your faith and trust in Him. Don't go away today wondering about that. Don't take a second chance on that particular aspect. Be right with God. Put your faith and trust in His only sacrifice, the precious sacrifice of it's his gift of grace that saves. So then they head off into the synagogue, verses 8, 9, and 10, and they come across uh, preaching and teaching for three months. They spoke boldly and reasoning, and they were empowered. And this is just not Paul, this is these new bunch of disciples as well, persuading Jews about the kingdom of God. But then you have the inevitable you have opposition. And these Jews became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way to such a degree that the whole mission of Paul now changes for the first time. He no longer goes to a synagogue. He goes to a school of Tyrannius. Now, I'm not sure if that's like a primary school or an intermediate school or, or whatever, but there was a school in the town. And he started ministering there for two years. You see, these Jews, they, they showed incredible opposition, as you see by these verbs, the word stubborn. And this, this indicates a hardening of heart or a hardened to something. It speaks of stubbornness when it comes to emotions. This type of word appears in the Old Testament in the way Pharaoh related to Moses. Let my people go. No, stubborn. And the verb is in what we know as the middle voice, which indicates that they hardened themselves in unbelief and they spoke evil 
This threefold response of hardening, unbelief, and speaking evil indicates a complete rejection of the message. My friend, don't be like that. Don't reject the message of Christ. Don't harden your heart to the truths of Scripture. Don't harden your heart to the person of Jesus. Because he's the only one that can save. We haven't got time to go on this morning, so we're going to finish there, and I'll ask the musicians to to come up and we'll sing our final song. My appeal to you today is don't harden your heart towards the things of God. If you know him, don't harden your heart towards the things that you know you should be doing in obedience to his spirit working in your heart. If you don't know him, Don't harden your hearts towards the wonderful message of grace and the offer of salvation that Christ gives through his free gift.